in the designs of providence, there are no more coincidences. And we should start from this. It was a perfect timing, perfect moment, perfect situation. All the world's a stage. And had Shakespeare lived in the late 20th century, he would have been intrigued by two men who starred on the grandest stage of all. Both men began their careers as actors. Both understand that a good script contains three essential elements, introduction, conflict, and resolution. They were working in the realm of the human spirit. The actors were a president and a pope who starred in a real-life drama. Political office is a kind of dramatic role. Ronald Reagan knew this very well. He'd been an actor. And what he understood was, to be a successful president, you have to know how to perform the presidency. And you go to the Vatican, of course, uh, St. Peter's and all that was built. It's, it's a stage set. It's built for processions and for speeches and for uh, public displays. And boy, did he know how to inhabit that space. You know, you're playing to the crowd. Politics is the biggest performance stage of all. They kind of knew about the drama of the world and the drama of the theater and how to use it. John Paul II and Ronald Reagan, two unlikely characters, made their final appearances early in the 21st century. Yet the roles they played lived on in our memory. They saw themselves as actors on the world stage, affecting a change, bringing freedom to people. That in my very carriage, in my very expression, in the acts that I perform that always have didactic meaning and portray something. They want to, to take what is on the stage and make it real for the people of the world. But was it a design of their own making, or was it the work of a divine plan. There was love, there was expectation of a miracle, and the miracle came. And for nine days, rapturous crowds cheered, and church bells rang as he traveled the country. And what I saw was a million-strong crowd the best behaved, the best self-policed mass of human beings I have ever encountered. The pent-up religious feelings of a people living for decades under the rule of a repressive atheist regime exploded. The church bells were tolling the beginning of the end of the Soviet Empire. The most important impact that the Pope had when he first came to Poland in 1979 was was the fact that he brought so many people together. Because one of the things that communism did was it isolated people. Dictatorships always have to create in you the fear that you're alone. No one will come to your assistance. But that is, cannot be the case if you have John Paul II addressing huge crowds. Suddenly, there were hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, and suddenly everybody saw one another. People know that they're not alone. The Pope came and emboldened the freedom fighter by preaching love, human dignity, and strength. A continent away, another man took notice. 
Ronald Reagan watched footage of the Pope's visit. With him was foreign policy expert Richard V. Allen, who later became President Reagan's national security advisor. They were talking foreign policy all day at Reagan's home in California. And at one point they decided to turn on the evening news. And they saw footage of John Paul II's visit to Poland. Allen reported that Reagan was astounded by the crowd size and was deeply moved by the unexpected outpouring of emotion. I saw a tear in R.R.'s uh, eye. It was a really interesting moment for me. Reagan leaned forward, peered into the TV screen. And he said, Dick, that's it, that's it, that's it. The Pope is the key, the Pope is the key, the Pope is the key. He immediately wanted to reach out to the new Pope and the Vatican and make them an ally. He was a beacon of light, that he was somebody who was um, a, a positive force operating in, uh, in a zone of darkness. Reagan knew Poland would be the linchpin in the dissolution of Russia. We've got to find a way to get elected, and we've got to reach out to this new Polish Pope and the Vatican and make them an ally. Reagan, for the first time in history, an American president is sharing classified CIA documents with, with the Pope. Reagan appoints a, an envoy to the Vatican, the first time in American history, and later an ambassador to the, to the Vatican, again, first time in American history. He's making an ally of Pope John Paul II. Few others understood that the Pope's visit was key to the first act in a groundbreaking play. The New York Times, for instance, said in a June 5, 1979 editorial, as much as the visit of Pope John Paul II to Poland must reinvigorate and re-inspire the Roman Catholic Church in Poland, it does not threaten the political order of the nation or of Eastern Europe. So they're missing the truth. They're missing the, the overwhelming evidence of, of the Soviet state versus American freedom. The Soviets are beside themselves. I mean, they know that this is a game changer. This is the linchpin that could take down the whole communist bloc. So one day, November 13, 1979, nine of them get together, members of the Soviet Central Committee. One of them, by the way, is a young member of the Central Committee named Mikhail Gorbachev. And they got together and they issued this chilling edict where they called for additional measures beyond discreditation and disinformation to attack this new pope. The pope and the president would not meet face to face until June 1982 at the Vatican, when they confided in one another what they had only thought in private. Their greatest role still awaited. Ronald Reagan had this very strong sense of divine providence. Ronald Reagan would have gotten it from his mother. He was very quick to say that, that view of the world, that everything is in God's hands. And obviously, John Paul II got it from his deep uh, Catholic faith. Ronnie, everything that happens in your life, good or bad, and including the bad things, happen according to a divine plan by a loving God. Reagan was born in 1911 to Nellie and Jack Reagan. By all accounts, Nellie was an earthly saint, a faith leader in the household. And I think that his mother's faith uh, and her upbringing of her children, especially in conditions of extreme duress with the drinking problem that his father had. He was, thought Reagan, a shoe salesman who chased rainbows and alcohol. Um, Reagan's childhood was difficult for uh, a young boy. Reagan did 
sort of build this wall around himself because jack reagan, who one day was the best buddy his son dutch ever had, the next day he was drunk, he was unreliable you know, reagan couldn't count on him an enduring memory for reagan was coming home at age eleven to find his father passed out on the front porch exposed and freezing in the snow and this eleven year old kid has this moment when he has to decide what do i do jack's hair was soaked with melted snow matted unevenly against the side of his reddened face and apparently he thought well maybe i'll just walk on by and ignore my dad here the very fact that an 11 year old kid could think for a minute my life might be better if my father were dead i mean that's a pretty heavy thing Four months later after the incident, Reagan asked to be baptized. He started life anew as a child of God, the son of an infinitely more reliable father. Carl Josef Wojtyla was born in 1920. His mother, Emilia, died when he was eight. Although he didn't hold many clear memories of her, he kept his parents' wedding portrait by his bed always. His father, Carol Sr., a military man, became his spiritual guide. He would take his son to shrines to the Virgin Mary, saying, This now is your mother. As young men, Carol Wojtyla and Ronald Reagan shared a common mission to protect, even save, others. Reagan became a lifeguard at 15 on Rock River in Dixon, Illinois. And in the seven years that follow, he saved the lives of 77 people. Reagan, you know, you were a good-looking young guy, and certainly those pretty girls who were thrashing around in the water, they probably weren't going to die. He didn't see the humor in that. Wojtyla already had established himself as a well-respected actor-playwright. He acted in plays with themes of Polish pride to defy the authorities. And he and a few friends formed this uh, famous rhapsodic theater where they, you know, behind uh, shuttered windows and locked doors, they recited the great poetry and, and, and drama of Polish literature. And the ground theater helped him to go through the most important words and problems and experiences to reach people, their hearts, and confront the evil. It was not until 1941 that he would enter the seminary, a secret underground seminary. He's coming of age at one of the worst moments in uh, the 20th century. Wojtyla witnessed firsthand the Nazi terror, the liquidation of Poland's Jewish population as tens of thousands were marched off to Auschwitz. He watched as many of his friends, as well as defiant priests, were sent to the same fate. If a German soldier or an SS guy or a Gestapo guy doesn't like the way you looked at him in the street, he can shoot you down and nothing will happen to him. Poland would lose 20% of its population in World War II, the highest percentage of any country. A personal tragedy added to the sorrow. On February 18, 1941, Wojtyla's father died of a heart attack. For the rest of his life, every day would recite to himself a prayer that his father had written for him when he was a child. 
the bereaved son told friends, I am alone at 20 years old. I have already lost all the people I've loved. At nearly the same moment, thousands of miles away, Reagan's father, who had finally redeemed his life and had a job answering his son's fan mail, also succumbed to heart failure. Reagan said he felt desolate and empty, but he assured his mother with his well-known optimism, Jack is okay, and where he is, he's very happy. By war's end, it was clear to both Reagan and Wojtyla that Russia, one of the allies who helped defeat Hitler, was about to unleash new atrocities on a depleted, helpless Eastern Europe. The Soviets fought not only against Western values of freedom and democracy, but also religion. With that battle came the spiritual oppression of millions of souls in Eastern Europe. From 1947 through 1959, Reagan's starring role was that of president of the Screen Actors Guild. He was responsible for the, the policy position of the actors regarding the big issues of the time, including the possibility that communism might be infiltrating Hollywood. To Reagan, there was a sort of a hard reality to this because Reagan was involved in a very controversial strike in which he was personally threatened. When he attempted to break a picket line, his bus was pelted with rocks, violently shattering the glass windows. He was warned that acid would be splashed in his movie star face. There were so many threats that he began sleeping with a Smith and Wesson. And the strike was instigated by communists within this new upstart union. And so Reagan felt it in his responsibility as basically one of the key players in Hollywood to keep the movie industry going. But increasingly Reagan felt it in the form of a challenge to the United States. Throughout the 50s, as host of television's GE Theater, Reagan had a new stage to work from, and the script would become increasingly political. As Reagan tasted politics, and he realized, you know, there's, there's something out there. Reagan realized that he was smart. He realized that he could be good at politics. There was a taste of politics in his mouth. And at this point, I think he begins thinking beyond, what's, what's my next career? What's my next role? By 1964, he had changed from Democrat to Republican and began acting in the political arena. While campaigning for Barry Goldwater, he delivered what would become known as the A Time for Choosing speech, or more simply, the speech. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. So he's saying this transcends partisan politics, but we must preserve we must honor, we must know, and we must live up to the principles that are a part of that vision of a shining city on a hill. By 1979, after eight years as governor, Reagan, through his rousing broadcasts and speeches, had amassed a solid anti-communist following. In a radio broadcast, Reagan noted that Stalin had once mockingly asked, how many divisions does the pop have? Reagan responded, well, that question has been answered when the people of Poland came forth in unbelievable numbers. Now fear was giving way to faith. Both of them achieved these positions of power toward the last quarter of their lives, the last fifth of their lives. 
is that there are no more political battles to win. Now it's just about the mission. St. Peter's Square, May 13th, 1981, just past five o'clock in the afternoon. John Paul II rides in a small open-air vehicle, dubbed the Popemobile. He greets a crowd of thousands who have come to the Vatican to cheer. One man, later identified as a Turkish national, lifts a pistol and aims it at the pontiff. Six weeks earlier, on May 30th, 1981, another assassination attempt had taken place. In this scene, it was President Reagan in the crosshairs. So if there's a way to look at all of this in the divine scheme of things, the divine plan, think about six weeks in 1981. March 30th, 1981 to May 13th, 1981. March 30th, 1981 was the day that Ronald Reagan was shot outside the Washington Hilton in Washington, D.C. The Kremlin feared no other man in the 1970s and 1980s in the West like they feared Ronald Reagan. The Soviets hated Ronald Reagan. Both of these men shared a conviction that communism in Europe could be defeated uh, and could be defeated without massive violence. From the moment he became John Paul II, forces were at work within Russia to vanquish this charismatic pope. Like Reagan, he had the ability to turn complex information into simple, understandable words, and to deliver these words with an actor's skill that could move nations. In 1984, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, who played an important role in the Cold War drama, also survived a bombing. Her reaction, though, differed in tone. She felt it would be vainglorious uh, to think of herself as having been protected from the assassination attempt on her by God. The idea that God would intervene directly for her, she thought, well, that's boasting, really. I think part of her religion factored in it because Methodism doesn't reject that God's direct all things, but it believes that the, the greater self-determination of men than, say, Catholics do. In the weeks before the assassination attempt, the communist press was full of vitriol directed at the pontiff. They cast him in the role of Nazi remnant, conning and dangerous ideological enemy, malicious, lowly, toady of American militarists, seeking to undermine communism with his new boss in the White House. So on May 13, 1981, the feast day of Our Lady of Fatima, John Paul II is riding through St. Peter's Square in his white Fiat Popemobile, and the top is down. He's driving around with, a, with an open roof, and as he's driving by, this shooter, this assigned shooter, this assassin, he has his 9mm Browning semi-automatic weapon, and as the Pope gets closer and closer and closer, finally, Mahmet Aliasha lifts that gun up in the air and fires, and he hit the Pope twice. Hit him once in the hand and once in the stomach. He immediately went down, collapsed into the arms of his aides, Father Zhivich and another aide, said, it's very painful, it hurts, I was hit in the stomach. They immediately got him in an ambulance and rushed him off to Jamelli Clinic. 
And he got there and they found out that he was bleeding very, very severely. As for Ronald Reagan, he reacted to the shooting of the Pope with a diary entry that day, sent a message to the Vatican and prayed. Could it have been mere coincidence that an attempt on Reagan's life had happened not long before? The timing was coincidental. As were the motives. The Pope's assailant was a political hired gun. Reagan's would-be assassin was a disturbed young man whose motive was to impress the movie star Jodie Foster. It was a random act of violence, not part of any plot or conspiracy. But did these events fit into a heavenly scheme? Could such indiscretion turn out to be part of a divine plan? Even if it wasn't, Reagan believed that all things happened for a reason. Reagan saw that he and John Paul were basically reading from the same book. The um, storyline of both the Pope and Reagan coincided very, very nicely together. Bits and pieces are making sense to us, but how precisely it plays out I don't know, and that's part of the fun of it. That's part of the, the drama, because I'm living it, not reading it. But what the two events have in common was clear. The true condition of both men was downplayed to the public. The official word in Washington was that Reagan was in stable condition. I decided <clears throat> to sneak away to the university club for 40 minutes swim and get back to the office and have a sandwich. And so my driver pulled me out of the pool by my hair and said, we've got to get back to the White House. Something terrible has happened. The surprise was that the president himself had been shot. He very nearly bled to death. He probably should have bled to death. It was very, very close. If that bullet was even a few centimeters over closer to his heart, he wouldn't have gotten out of the car. He would have, he would have died on the way to George Washington University Hospital. When it became clear that Reagan had been taken to the emergency room and that he passed out walking into the hospital and that he was in the operating room. Then, then Americans began to get nervous. There are no alert measures that are necessary at this time or contemplated. In truth, both men were closer to death than was acknowledged at the time. John Paul II underwent a five-hour operation and lost 60% of his blood. John Paul would have read it as he read everything else as part of the divine plan and he would have seen it according to the template of the cross and resurrection of Jesus so he would have read it that way did it give him a heightened sense of his mission to struggle against what he saw quite correctly as the supreme evil in the world of his time I'd say yes absolutely um, and that again brings him close to Ronald Reagan. Reagan lost half of his blood. On that harrowing day in Washington, Vice President George H.W. Bush was on an airplane flying back to Washington, D.C. from Texas. For a brief time with a bleeding president on the operating table, confusion gripped the White House. And one of the young women working in the press office said, they want to know who's running the government. And Al said, oh, well, I'll take care of it. I said, wait, wait. As of now, I am in control here in the White House. And he lunged up behind the podium, and I stood next to him. 
the doctors didn't tell reagan how close he was to dying and so okay i'm awake i'm alive i've got this audience around me i can tell a joke and he's joking as he goes into the operating room hoping that all the doctors there are republicans and that's when the head surgeon says well today mr president we're all republicans reagan had sufficient self-possession to realize okay if i can convey that i've still got my sense of humor i've got my wits about me that will have a calming effect and reagan would later say he would call john hinckley this mixed up young man and, and he said isn't that the meaning of the lost sheep we are all god's children we are all lost sheep and reagan said i immediately prayed for him to find his way back to the fold And one of the first things he wrote in his diaries when he woke up uh, from his surgery is, I'm going to dedicate my life to peace. I'm going to work hard to become a, uh, make the world a better and safer place. Hence his determination to rid whole classes of nuclear armaments, to put a big thaw in uh, the U.S.-Soviet Cold War. John Paul II came away from that ordeal just like Ronald Reagan came away from his shooting, thinking what God had in store for them now, that he obviously was sparing them for a higher purpose. And the fact that they both saw it, they both understood that, I don't think you'll understand either one of them without understanding that. Both Reagan and Pope John Paul II shared the belief of um, optimism. After their ordeals, both men made strong recoveries and returned to work. Reagan, a vibrant 70-year-old, was back in the Oval Office, and John Paul II returned to the Vatican. I have this power. I have this ability. I have these, these resources to assemble to achieve what it is I've made it my life's goal to do, which is to defeat Soviet communism. Ronald Reagan, for his first public speech after the shooting of John Paul II, just happens to be a commencement address that had been previously scheduled weeks in advance of, at all places, America's most famous Catholic university, Notre Dame University. Reagan made a pivotal speech at the University of Notre Dame, announcing his grand mission. He spoke with his new Catholic partner in mind, in the speech, Reagan quoted John Paul II. Certain economic theories that use the rhetoric of class struggle to justify injustice. He said, in the name of an alleged justice, the neighbor is sometimes destroyed, killed, or deprived of liberty, or stripped of fundamental human rights. Reagan continued with his own observations. The years ahead are great ones for this country, for the cause of freedom and the spread of civilization. The West won't contain communism. It'll transcend communism. And it was there, after he said that, in particular, that he started to talk about the shooting of John Paul II. I think looking back in retrospect, 
That might have been one of Ronald Reagan's first public indications that he was very much suspecting a possible Soviet communist hand in the shooting of Pope John Paul II. The first step in the destruction of evil is to name it, to call it out, because it doesn't like that. Another absolutely crucial player in this was Bill Casey, the head of the CIA, Irish Catholic, like Bill Clark, he was an Irish Catholic, and he had been almost plucked out of retirement by Ronald Reagan. And his closest aide, Herb Myers, said that Casey felt that when Ronald Reagan called him to head the CIA, that God was giving Casey one more shot to do something really, really significant. And Casey, too, felt this divine plan sense that he was being tasked, that he was being called to do battle against this beast in the Soviet Union. I didn't know Bill Casey well, but I knew him. This was a brilliant, unappreciated Cold Warrior. May 13, 1981, very next day, May 14, 1981, Bill Casey immediately called a special session of the National Foreign Intelligence Board in Washington, D.C., on F Street, to talk about what exactly the Soviets were up to. And he wanted to know, from the very beginning, he suspected that maybe they might have had something to do with the shooting of the Pope. They regarded the U.S.-Vatican relationship as a holy alliance. The moral force of the Pope and the teachings of their church combined with fierce anti-communism and their notion of an American democracy. Reagan took the moral aspect of the Cold War more seriously than other American presidents had. Other American presidents tried to figure out how to manage the Cold War. Wait, Reagan? Reagan wanted to win the Cold War. Reagan was determined to restore dynamism to the United States economy, and he was determined to confront uh, Soviet power around the world. My policy in the Cold War is very simple. We win, they lose. John Paul II, after returning to the Vatican, his voice still weak after surgery, addressed a group of Polish pilgrims. He declared the future was beginning to look grim for an empire that paraded strength with troop movements, but was weakening from within. President Reagan and John Paul II's parallel critique of communism was that it misread human beings. It did not realize, would not acknowledge, the inherent dignity and God-given value of every individual human life. And if you don't get that right, if you don't get, if you will, the anthropology right, if you don't get the idea of the human person right, you're going to make a big mess out of your politics, out of your society, out of your economy, out of your culture. Russia responded to the assassination attempt on the Pope as expected. They attempted to deflect blame. Pravda, the official newspaper of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, referred to the Pope's would-be assassin, Mehmet Ali Aja, as a neo-fascist with ties to Turkey's neo-fascist National Movement Party. The publication and the party kept emphasizing that Aja was a Turk. When Britain's Guardian newspaper speculated on Moscow's involvement, Izvesta, another Soviet organ, called the assertion a vile concoction and ravings. Moscow tried pointing the finger at the CIA. The Kremlin, already on shaky ground, would put on its own show, 
desperately trying to disguise its oppressive regime, now slowly rotting from within. Well, now they better really be fearful of an alliance between these two, because this shooting, which they helped precipitate, which they took part in, made that alliance even tighter. The most important story to tell here is that Reagan and the Pope were operating on the same level of spirituality, the same level of confidence in a divine power. Reagan and the Pope would meet five times in eight years. I think being in the room when the Pope and the President met, you could see there was a delight on both faces. They were in this place where it was appointed of them by a divine power. People have to understand that John Paul II spoke uh, English. It was excellent. So there wasn't an interpreter to slow down the discussion between Ronald Reagan and John Paul II. So there were many times when they went for a walk in the woods or a walk in the gardens of the Vatican, just the two of them, talking about the Soviet Union, talking to them about CIA analysis of Soviet intentions, talking about the growth of uh, the Solidarity Movement in Poland. A simple yet sincere trust in divine providence brought them together. And boy, I think there was a, a, a bond, a simpatico, as the Italians would say, that developed because of that. There was constant correspondence going on between the two. So many letters, so many telegrams, um, so much electronic communication, hard copy letters. Unfortunately, most of the contents are still unknown. The Vatican letters have been sealed for 50 years. So nobody knows the content of Pope John Paul II's letters to Ronald Reagan and won't know for another, another 20 some odd years they were sealed, which makes it fascinating too, is the full story of the relationship between John Paul II and Ronald Reagan for many years to come. By the end of 1981, Ronald Reagan and John Paul II had already exchanged about a dozen or so letters between, between the two of them. Reagan and the philosopher Pope were more alike than they appeared. They both, as trained actors, believed in the power of the symbolic act, and they shared this important sentiment. Reagan. Every person is a res sacra, a sacred reality. John Paul II. Every person is a unique and unrepeatable gift of God. With Reagan, where the motivation comes from, where the values come from, it's a combination of what he felt, what he observed, what he saw worked for him, what played politically well. And, I'm, and I, I don't think this makes his beliefs any less sincere. Reagan believed quite seriously in the need for the United States to stand for individual freedom, freedom of conscience, freedom of elective politics. He believed in the very ideals of freedom that he was trying to uphold at home and abroad. And that belief is not trivial, and it's not beside the point, and it's not play-acting. Both Reagan and John Paul II believed in the connection between faith and freedom, and were compelled to speak out boldly and unequivocally against evil. There was a personal relationship between Pope John Paul II and Ronald Reagan. They confided in each other their conviction that God had spared their lives a year earlier 
for the divine purpose of defeating the communist empire. God draws our freedom. He, he lures our freedom. So he has a plan, but he wants us cooperating with it. So the main point is it's not a, a zero-sum game. Like the more God does, the less we do. Or the more we're involved, the less God's involved. No, on the contrary. During these years, the formidable British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, joined forces with the Pope and the President, also forging a special bond with Reagan. As Bill Clark, the once chief of staff turned national security advisor, reported, Reagan and John Paul II agreed that the key to translating their lofty mission into a real-world strategy to defeat Soviet aggression was to sustain solidarity. Look, there's another civilization out there that wants to help you. So we are the West. Um, we are part of that alternative that the Pope is describing. Almost from its inception, Reagan believed that solidarity was a crack of light in the Iron Curtain. Reagan got advice from his diplomats, don't do this kind of thing, don't provoke the Soviet Union. The Poles will be better off if we can treat this on a low-key basis. Reagan rejected that view. He said it's very important to take a moral stand, to make a moral statement even when you cannot do everything that you want to accomplish your goal immediately because change comes in small steps. From 1982 through the June 1989 election in Poland, when communists did not win a single seat, the U.S. funneled $50 million to solidarity. It turned out to be a sound investment. The money's going for handbills. It's going for later fax machines. I remember speaking to a group of Polish journalists, and I said, what was it? What impelled you forward? What kept you going? What inspired you? And to a person, they said, the words of Ronald Reagan and the words of John Paul II. During those years, a third man was moving into a starring role in the unfolding drama. Lech Valenza, an electrician who worked in the shipyard at Gdansk, began to gain strength and influence with his union, Solidarity. He's a charismatic shipyard worker in Gdansk, and they were striking over various things as, as small as getting an allocation of toilet paper to bigger things about food and rights and privilege and all this is that Poland is cracking. The, the, the Western ideas are, are coming in and the Soviet Union cracks down even more. While the Polish government could not obliterate the Solidarity Movement, it could impose martial law on the country. As a result, Walensa was arrested. The clergy was persecuted. The heart of the Soviets and, and Jaruzelski cracked down on Poland the more solidarity grows, the more important Lech Walesa becomes, the more important the freedom, the, the, the need for freedom, the desire for freedom, the want for freedom becomes in Poland. It was clear that Moscow had a stranglehold on the Polish government. As Brezhnev fumed, the Pope stood with his people. It was said that Brezhnev was one of those Bolsheviks who imbibed atheism and anti-church attitude with their mother's milk. The Soviet leader was worried about the growing strength of solidarity and even more about the unshakable hold the Catholic Church had on Poland's people. Contact between Washington and John Paul II had actually begun during Jimmy Carter's presidency. Zbigniew Brzezinski, then National Security Advisor. Through his great diplomacy and personal skills to create a, a 
good, a very good and excellent and outstanding relationship with Pope John Paul II. When Reagan was sworn into office in 1981, I, Ronald Reagan, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. The contact with the Vatican intensified. Reagan asked to be informed of everything that occurred in Poland and told Richard Allen, his security aide, and CIA Director William Casey to keep the subject front and center. Brzezinski was kept on as a consultant, which meant continued contact with John Paul II. Brzezinski said, we involved the Pope directly. I can't go into details. Casey ran it. If something needed to be done, it was done. To sustain an underground effort takes a lot of effort. The CIA, under Casey's leadership, monitored the situation on the ground in Eastern Europe. Bill Clark, meanwhile, was tapped to act as a clandestine messenger to the Pope in an ongoing mission codenamed Cappuccino. The moniker came from the coffee prepared by Archbishop Pio Laghi, who was the Vatican's ambassador to the U.S. and was designated secret contact for Clark. They were meeting constantly. Clark thinks that it might have been as often as maybe even once a week. And Clark said that he and Casey, when they would talk on the phone, sometimes afraid that the phones might be bugged, that there might be listening devices in the phones. When they felt the need to, to get in touch with Loggy, to get in touch with the Vatican, Clark or Casey would say to the other, I think it's time we get a cappuccino break. And they had a very strict policy of no notes, no cameras, and no, no media whatsoever. It was the Reagan administration that gave full diplomatic status to uh, the Vatican. Casey flew missions around the world in a C-141 windowless black jet and made a point to visit Rome to share intelligence and to urge the Pope at Reagan's behest to keep up the pressure. He wanted the pontiff to understand America's position that the Soviets posed threats not just in Eastern Europe, but around the globe. So now you have the two sides really working together at the level of, say, Poland. Previously, this pope had gone into Poland, met with people, talked to people, and really saw on the ground what the solidarity movement was, what religious belief was in the country. I shared some satellite photos with Bill Casey and I know that he took some of those uh, to Rome to show to the Holy Father. Vernon Walters, Deputy Director of Central Intelligence, was dispatched to Rome in 1981 with something to show the Pope. One of the most important outreaches here, liaisons, was Bill Casey. Bill Casey and Vernon Walters, an extraordinary man, Vernon Walters, an ambassador who spoke a bunch of different languages, fluent in multi-languages. And they would fly often back and forth to the Vatican, and they would brief the Holy Father in person. During his visit, Walters placed an envelope on the table in front of the Pope. Inside were satellite photographs. The Pope immediately recognized the Dansk-Lenin shipyard, where solidarity had been born. What is this? Asked the Vicar of Christ, pointing to a circle. Walters replied, heavy equipment for use by Polish security forces. Then they looked at other images that showed missiles programmed to reach Western Europe in minutes. So Casey would share with the Holy Father pictures of Soviet troop movements in Poland, 
of missile locations in Czechoslovakia. And the Pope would look at the, the, the minute details of these different satellite image, images, and he was just blown away, impressed by this. Walters was much more interested in what the Pope knew about the internal situation in Poland. He had what Walters called the oldest intelligence service in the world. Walters, like Reagan, was convinced the real power in Poland was Wojtyla. The images Walters had shared made John Paul II believe he, in fact, might have been a target of communist bad intentions. Since the attempt on the Pope's life in 1981, questions of blame swirled around intelligence circles. From the very beginning, Ronald Reagan, Bill Casey, Bill Clark, they suspected a possible Soviet hand in the shooting of the Pope from the very beginning. And then as they started to learn of a possible Bulgarian connection to the shooter, Mahmoud Aliasha. Few people aware of the ways of the Kremlin believed the Bulgarians, who were dutiful stooges of Moscow, acted on their own. In that period and at that time, the secret services of all of those countries were very much under the KGB's roof. And it, was, it would have been a KGB decision to use the Bulgarians to carry that something like that out. The Bulgarian communist leadership didn't get up in the morning and put their pants on without getting KGB approval. So as this became clear, a Bulgarian connection, as Mahmoud Aliasha himself named the KGB in one moment when he was being led out of an Italian prison to an Italian courthouse in 1983, all of this for Ronald Reagan and Bill Casey and Bill Clark only further fueled what they had already suspected from the beginning. At the time of the assassination attempt, the Italian press raised questions about who might have masterminded the plot. The distinguished American journalist Claire Sterling, who was based in Rome, also reported on the attempted murder. CIA Director Casey was impressed by Sterling's level of detail, particularly her ability to detect discrepancies in the stories the gunman Aja was telling. In her front page article in the New York Times, Sterling strongly suggested a Soviet hand at work, although she did not present any evidence. The CIA continued to investigate Sterling's theory. Supposedly a document existed that said, nine comrades from the Central Committee issued this order, use all possibilities to the Soviet Union to prevent the course of policies initiated by the Polish Pope, if necessary, with additional measures beyond disinformation and discreditization. I think everybody is trying to find the smoking memorandum here. No one would have written down, go shoot the Pope. That, that's not the way that game worked. But a number of people have read that document, including the Italian Secret Service, SISDE, S-I-S-D-E, and, and they believe that that document was an actual call for the physical elimination of John Paul II. There's one thing about the bureaucracy that people need to understand is, is that they are committed to committing everything to writing. Bureaucrats love to see their name in writing. Bureaucrats love to commit things to paper. And it doesn't matter whether it's a bureaucrat in Kremlin, in the Kremlin, or a bureaucrat in the Soviet Union, or a bureaucrat in Washington. 
This speculation is absolutely warranted. We use deductive logic, we collect shreds and pieces to restore a picture because the Kremlin does not allow us into its archives. Well, put it like this, there's no way that the Bulgarian Secret Service is going to murder the attempt to murder the Pope, any Pope, but particularly this Pope, um, without clearing it with the Soviet Union. But it was done so with the blessing, the go-ahead, the approval, the green light of the head of the KGB, a guy named Yuri Andropov. Though the exact date of the meeting was never fully confirmed, Casey met with Reagan in spring of 1985. Casey informed the president that the Soviets had ordered the assassination attempt on the Pope. There were more convincing clues. In 2006, Paul Kengor met with Bill Clark, long retired from his post as national security advisor to President Reagan at Clark's California ranch. Ken Gore discovered a piece of paper with a rare public statement Clark had made in Las Vegas in 1984 at a reunion of Army counterintelligence veterans. The statement made clear that Clark suspected the Soviets were behind the assassination attempt of the Pope. It even had a penciled in note suggesting a Bulgarian and therefore Soviet connection. But was there enough proof? Something that's obviously very intriguing about this is that working in the KGB in the 1980s at the time was a lower-ranking lieutenant colonel named Vladimir Putin. Now, to be clear, there's no way that Putin would have known anything about this at the time, the shooting of the Pope. There's no way he would have been involved. This was the tightest thing that the Soviets ever did in their you know, three quarters of a century of murder and mayhem. I mean, very, very few people knew about this. However, I think it's, I can't imagine that today, Vladimir Putin, who's been in charge of the former Soviet Union, of Russia, since the year 2000, he surely now knows today what exactly happened and what exactly the role of the KGB and the GRU was. All these years later, the report is still under wraps. Why? Is the US government worried about offending today's Russia? Is it sensitive to the concerns of Vladimir Putin, who might want to protect his former boss, one-time Soviet Secretary General Yuri Andropov, and his former employee, the KGB? Or is the U.S. government being sensitive to the concerns of the Vatican, which still doesn't want to see international division? Those are questions still unanswered, but in real time, and in the course of the divine plan, there would be no more hiding the truth even the Pope himself would come to concede, albeit privately, that he also knew who was behind his assassination. The Pope suspected early on that Soviet intelligence had ordered the assassination, but ultimately he did not want the subject exposed. John Paul II's response, I'm told, was, I know, I figured this, this doesn't surprise me at all, but he didn't want the United States to make a big deal out of it, didn't want the United States to release that information. What was done was done, 
and he did not want to derail the crucial dialogue that had opened up between the Vatican and the new and very different Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev. Gorbachev's star, like Reagan's and the Pope's, had risen steadily. He ascended through the ranks of the Porter Bureau to become president of the USSR. To friends and colleagues, the Pope referred to Gorbachev as the providential man. That somehow that he was part of a kind of cosmic realignment that was going on, that the moment was ripe for change in the world because Gorbachev was willing to recognize what was heinous and wrong with not just Stalinism, but um, you know the KGB and Brezhnev, um, and that there was this hope With Gorbachev, the Pope and the President found a new cast member introduced to this historical drama, one that had the power to transform. If you wanted to set the scene for the late 70s, early 80s, a dramatic moment in time, you would have been very hard pressed to think up these four characters. And moreover, these four characters at the same time. The communist creed that had dominated Russian politics since the revolution of 1917 would no longer hold. It was time to pull back the Iron Curtain and shine the new light of Glasnost and Perestroika. Glasnost, reform and restructuring. Perestroika, a promised new opening in the Soviet Union. Glasnost was really a radical change because this was, Glasnost was initially meant to be part of an economic reform. It was the Soviet Union was going to, um, people were going to speak honestly about problems. You know, our factories don't work, our distribution system is terrible, we have all these shortages, we have these disasters. Let's talk about them honestly because that's the prerequisite to fixing them. So let's have open and positive conversations. Gorbachev was nothing if not a realist and he began loosening some of the chains that had constricted Russian life, including those that ruled religion. Ironically, it was Western liberalism, classical liberalism, which Gorbachev instituted with Glasnost and Perestroika, which are basically, basically Western liberal ideas that were his undoing. Gorbachev was actually unintentionally hollowing out the Soviet Union by admitting everything they stood for for the past 77 years had been wrong. It was obvious to anyone paying attention that the empire was crumbling. Meanwhile, the Western liberal press began to treat Gorbachev as a hero with his promised new era of Glasnost. Reagan and the Pope were more cautious, but they hoped a dawn of peace would come with the help of this new Soviet leader. Unlike his three predecessors, Konstantin Chernenko, Yuri Andropov, and Leonid Brezhnev, uh, Gorbachev did not see his closest friends dragged down into the basement of the Lubyanka uh, prison in Moscow and assassinated with a bullet in the back of the head. He didn't have that cold, almost reptilian look that the others had. He set out to do something that um, was un unachievable, namely to save the Soviet Union from its own sclerosis. You can't reform something that's fundamentally mistaken in its basic ideas. 
once you began speaking honestly about the way that things are, people immediately began to want to speak honestly about everything, including the past. What had really happened under Stalin? What was the gulag? Why did all those people disappear into nowhere? Of all the freedoms in the Soviet Union that were among the most repressed and that most bothered Ronald Reagan and John Paul II was the repression of religious freedom. And, and to the two of them, when Mikhail Gorbachev came in and with his glasnost allowed for freedom of press, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, those were all great, but none were as important as the freedom of religion that Gorbachev allowed. Reagan said, freedom is like a genie. Gorbachev learned this. When you let that genie out of the bottle, you can't put it back in. It became such a widespread movement in Russia that they didn't know how to control or contain it. Um, and so he, many ways, Gorbachev became um, popular in the United States, popular with conservatives in, in the U.S. and Western Europe, but a, a man without a home in Russia. In Russia, he is not remembered as a hero. On the contrary, he is remembered as the man who brought down the Soviet empire and as the man who triggered a decade's worth of economic catastrophe. Once a totalitarian state begins to acknowledge an elementary human right, it's like tugging on a thread in a tapestry. Uh, if you tug hard enough on that one thread, the whole thing is going to unravel. The stage was set for the end of the Cold War. What would be the final breaking point if indeed there was a divine plan? A key element would be stopping the madness of the nuclear arms race between the two global superpowers. Reagan and Gorbachev met five times between 1985 and 1988. The first meeting was in Geneva. President and I were sitting in front of this fire waiting for the Gorbachev motorcade to arrive. And it was just the two of us and I said, how are we gonna get rid of it forever? And he looked at me and without skipping a beat said, oh Jim, that's only gonna happen because of the people's desire to know God. Reagan had faith in the process. And Reagan recognized that tough rhetoric mattered. And that, um, you know, his most famous saying about the Soviets is trust but verify. Uh, basically, we don't trust you and nobody should trust you. That you're a kingdom of lies and secrecy, that the KGB's corrupt. Finally, it appeared that a door in the negotiations had opened. It was October 11th, 1986. A summit between Reagan and Gorbachev was hastily arranged in Reykjavik, Iceland. When they met, Reagan noticed that Gorbachev often invoked God in the conversation. The one thing that always angered Reagan was that in the Soviet Union, you couldn't have a Bible, that you couldn't have freedom of worship. At dinner during the toast, Gorbachev quoted Ecclesiastes, ending with, a time to throw away the stones and a time to gather the stones together. This mattered to him and I think gave him fortitude um, in his anti-communist anti policies in the 1980s. In fact, Gorbachev admitted later to a top aide of John Paul II that his mother and three of his grandparents had been Christians and that he was secretly baptized in the Russian Orthodox Church. Later in November 1989, 
he would make a speech in which he affirmed the need for spirituality in the world and called for a revolution in men's souls. Religion helps perestroika. We have given up pretending to have a monopoly on the truth. But Reagan's thoughts and, and Pope John Paul II's thoughts have penetrated the Soviet state to allow a new way of thinking. Even more astonishing than that admission was the sight the next day in 1989 of a limousine bearing the flag with a hammer and sickle, motoring down the avenue to the Vatican. In that visit, a communist and a pope would meet for the first time. Back in Reykjavik, Reagan and Gorbachev continued the negotiations, hoping to strike a deal to control intermediate-range ballistic missiles. The stage was set for progress. They had already shared with one another their intense desire to abolish nuclear weapons. Reagan's arms control director, Ken Edelman, described the meeting as intense. Reagan and Gorbachev talked for ten and a half hours. With Reagan, he was patient. He was pragmatic. You don't have to win it all at once. Reagan used to say, I would rather get 80% of what I want than go over the cliff with my flags flying. Because Reagan understood, maybe you get 80% today, you come back tomorrow, and you get a bit more. There was no knowledge gap between the two leaders. They came within sight of an incredible agreement, theretofore unimaginable, until Gorbachev demanded that Reagan give up his dream of SDI, the Strategic Defense Initiative, the missile program popularly known as Star Wars. SDI was an idea, but it was Reagan's idea and it terrified Gorbachev and the Soviet generals. After all, we did put Neil Armstrong in the moon in the summer of 1969. We won the space race, and the Soviets couldn't believe that we did that feat. And then when we said, we're now creating a strategic defense initiative, a protective shield for nuclear weapons that will make us um, uh, never vulnerable to Soviet mi missiles, they believed we had that technology. Reagan was adamant there would be no capitulation on SDI. Gorbachev would not budge either. He complained, and not just once, I am making all the concessions. Each time Reagan said nothing, he never answered. According to Edelman on the plane going home, Gorbachev complained to his staff, I give away things. The two left Reykjavik at an impasse, although Reagan clearly had the upper hand. They both faced the hard truth that nuclear war was a continuing threat and agreed to meet again in Washington, which would take place 14 months later. This was December 1987. In a speech a week before Reykjavik, Reagan began to pressure Gorbachev on religious freedom. How can we help but doubt a government that mistrusts its own people and holds them against their will? Despite some loosening of restrictions, the USSR continued to suppress and even jail Russian Jews for practicing their faith and would not let them emigrate. Reagan badly wanted a treaty that would eliminate intermediate and short-range nuclear missiles, but he could not remain silent about human rights. The State Department worried that his outspokenness would jeopardize a treaty that was so close to being a fait accompli. Reagan also demanded the legalization of the Ukrainian Catholic Church, which must have resonated with John Paul II while enraging the Soviets.
but Gorbachev was ready to finalize the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces INF Treaty. He stated, I am convinced it is God's will that we should cooperate. They went head to head on a number of occasions, especially at Reykjavik. And Reagan is just kind of trying to figure, why can't you come to an agreement? Gorbachev is saying, why can't you agree with us? We're so close. But they do form this personal relationship. And in his last meeting with, one of his last meetings with Gorbachev, Reagan is asked if he still believes something that he said back in 1983. Is the Soviet Union an evil empire? And Reagan doesn't repeat that. He says those were different days. Reagan finally came to the belief that reform is possible in the Soviet Union. The nuclear freeze was made official on December 8, 1987, with the signing of the INF Treaty in the East Room of the White House. The date was also the feast day of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary, to whom the Pope had consecrated his life and papacy. At this moment, John Paul II was behind the Iron Curtain on his third trip to Poland. This time, he traveled to Gdansk and met with Lech Walesa, giving, as historian Robert Service would characterize, an ecclesiastical benediction to solidarity. So one of the things that clearly happened at the end of the 1980s is that some members of the Soviet elite, and obviously Gorbachev is one of them, stopped seeing the West as an evil demon, as a threat. President Reagan was besieged, not just from the left. Conservatives were furious that dealing with Gorbachev was betraying his long-held Cold War principles. And before he spoke in Berlin, officials from the State Department repeatedly tried to cut a line from his speech. It would be the line that would reverberate across the globe. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. There was no turning back for the Soviet regime. The only question was the speed of its fall. Toward the end, Gorbachev is out of power. He's had the wisdom to get down on his knees and sue for peace and beg the West for mercy. And Reagan takes his cowboy peel and puts it on the neck of Soviet communism and crushes the life out of it. And Gorbachev says, shortly thereafter, he said, the future is clear and the future points to freedom. John Paul II would pick up the torch of symmetry meeting one-on-one -on -one with Gorbachev at the Vatican in that truly historic meeting in 1989. Even the New York Times would write, for the first time ever, the leader of atheistic Soviet communism meets the vicar of Christ. Change had come so dramatically in such a short time and without a gun being fired, one could only wonder whether this was all part of the divine plan. Faith, though subjugated for decades, had shown the power to change the world. The election in Poland in 1989 was the first confirmation that the Soviet Empire was on its way to oblivion. On November 9, 1989, the Berlin Wall came down. The final act against the Soviet Empire drew to a close. They were both instruments of peace. They were instruments of God. 
in this larger divine plan. I think, in, I think we won the Cold War, but it may have just been round one. And alas, you're seeing a Cold War II emerging under Putin. He's very dangerous. He's a throwback. He wants to reassemble the old Soviet state. He's a former KGB officer uh, who specialized in, in, in intelligence. This is that uh, Putin knows the Russian people mourn the past. He is projecting himself as somebody who will bring back some kind of glory, whether it's not quite the Soviet Empire, maybe it's the Russian Empire. Um, certainly it's Russia playing a role on the world stage again and having some kind of influence again. At the end of almost every speech, Reagan invokes these words from Thomas Paine. Remember, we have it within our ability to begin the world over again. Reagan felt that we did have that ability. And he gives his audience not only a charge to go out and do that, but the confidence he has in them that they will go out and begin the world over again. Were John Paul II and Ronald Reagan directly responsible for the fall of communism? When people talk about the Pope being involved in the fall of communism, they don't mean that the Pope was literally on the barricades. What they mean is that the Pope, um, the Pope gave people an alternative worldview. In comments at Westminster Palace in London in 1982, Reagan said that the Soviet Union was gripped by a great revolutionary crisis in which Poland, magnificently unreconciled to repression, was the pivot. There has been and will continue to be repeated explosions against repression and dictatorships. The Soviet Union itself is not immune to this reality. The 20th century was a pretty awful period in human history. Uh, between the beginning of the First World War in 1914 and the end of the Cold War in 1991, uh, something on the order of 70 to 80 million human beings were killed, not in war, but by political violence. This is a pretty awful record. And yet, the fact that the 20th century as an era ended with the victory of freedom in the Cold War, and that at the root of that victory of freedom was a revolution of conscience. If you really look at the grand scope of this, you have Ronald Reagan born in 1911. The Bolshevik Revolution breaks out in October 1917. Carol Wojtyla was born in 1920. And by the end of their lives, of Reagan's presidency, about halfway through John Paul II's papacy, Bolshevik communism, atheistic Soviet communism, collapsed, which these two men tried to force that to happen. And so they would see all of this as a big, long battle of the 20th century within the divine plan, the divine scheme of things. And those under the totalitarian states still held at gunpoint would gain strength in the light of the Western promise of freedom.
Together, Ronald Reagan and John Paul II acted to fight what they considered evil. They met last at the Vatican in September 1990, near Castel Gandolfo. It was to be their last meeting, which Nancy Reagan described as warm and wonderful. Reagan was already slipping into the dim world of Alzheimer's, finally not even remembering that he had been president of the United States. The Pope began declining from Parkinson's disease. But a certain stage presence was still evident in these two former actors. Even as human frailty would slowly take over, they had to lean on others as they continued to depend on their faith. From the first then, our nation embraced the belief that the individual is sacred and that as God himself respects human liberty, so too must the state. From the beginning of America, freedom was directed to forming a well-ordered society and to promoting its peaceful life. Freedom was channeled the fullness of human life, to the preservation of human dignity, and the safeguarding of human rights. God wants to draw, awaken, and enhance freedom in such a way that His grace can operate more fully in the world. Um, that's the discernment of the divine plan, I think, as both John Paul and Ronald Reagan saw it. God is intimately involved in human history, and one of the ways that he most brings about his will, often imperceptibly, and always taking a long uh, period of time, would be in the cultivation of wise leaders. Which is good for the world, and it's good for those whom God raises up, because the more they surrender to him, the more they become themselves. In 2004, President George W. Bush presented the Pope with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Barely able to speak, John Paul II thanked President Bush and asked him to send my regards to President Reagan and Mrs. Reagan. Reagan died the next day on June 5th. I can put it no better than um, uh, Mrs. Thatcher in her eulogy to Ronald Reagan, which she said, um, we have one advantage that Ronald Reagan never had. We have his example. Less than a year later, in April, the Pope died. All of those lessons and teachings and homilies and of John Paul II, they are really matters. His word matters. His uniqueness matters. I feel by heart that uh, people are really hungry of wisdom, of words, of presence, of gestures, of smile. John Paul II. They both symbolize, they both represent, they both work for these the single set of beliefs that greater freedom, greater acknowledgement of human dignity is really important. It turns out that their side won, at least as of the early 1990s, but it's an ongoing struggle. On June 27, 2011, in a Thanksgiving Mass for Blessed John Paul II and for the late President Ronald Reagan, Cardinal Stanislaw Giewicz, who in 1981 held the wounded Pope in his arms, said, 
This world is a battlefield of good and evil, truth and falsehood. Each of us faces a choice. Today we recall two great men who stood before this very choice and how their decision shaped the world in which we live. It was a reminder that the two leaders overcoming fears and doubts made hard choices that reflected their deepest convictions and beliefs. But whether you're a Christian or not, John Paul II thought you could understand uh, the notion that there is divine purpose at work in human affairs. The task of conscience is to determine what that divine purpose is and then to live it out uh, irrespective of the cost. I think of uh, Walt Whitman's poem, you know, and the lines about the, the powerful play goes on and, and you might contribute a verse. And so you think of these two figures and the powerful verse they contributed was to speak this truth and then actively to engage in the struggle. And that's no small thing. Shakespeare would conclude, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances and one man in his time plays many parts. In the famous words of Pope St. John Paul II, a coincidence is what a believer calls divine providence. O me, O life, that you are here, that life exists, and identity, that the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. Walt Whitman, O me, O life.